Hello, and welcome to the So You Want to Be a Marine Biologist podcast, where we learn about the ocean, share sea stories, and explore ocean careers. I'm your host, Kara Musia. Let's dive into today's episode. Have you ever wanted to explore the underwater realm, but aren't sure how to get dive certified? I've got you covered. Head over to marinebio.life slash scuba for beginners and grab your copy of my new scuba guide. In it, I cover the different certifying agencies, gear, lingo, and the number one thing to look out for when you're getting certified. This guide will leave you confident in how to become certified and ready to dive in. Head on over to marinebio.life slash scuba for beginners to get your copy and get diving already. marinebio.life slash scuba for beginners. Hey, do you want to help the oceans? Have you considered a career in marine biology, but maybe just aren't sure where to start? Head on over to my website, marinebio.life, and subscribe to my newsletter. When you subscribe, you'll receive a free PDF download where you'll learn the seven steps to becoming a marine biologist without the degree. Hello, mermaids, pirates, ocean lovers, and land lovers. Welcome to today's show. Question, why are killer whales so good at hunting? They're very well orchestrated. When is a stack of lumber like food in the ocean? When it's a plankton. Eric Hoyt has spent much of his life on or beside the ocean, working with whales and dolphins. He is a noted conservationist, scientist, and an award-winning author, and he actually wrote the first-ever book on orcas, or killer whales. A former Venevar Bush Fellow at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, Eric is currently a research fellow at Whale and Dolphin Conservation, co-chair of the IUCN Marine Mammal Protected Areas Task Force, and author of the new book, Planktonia, The Nightly Migration of the Ocean's Smallest Creatures, from Firefly Books. In this episode, we chat about making a living from passion projects, Eric's work with orcas, and all about the greatest migration on Earth that happens twice a night, every night, in the deep blue sea. Please enjoy. Eric, welcome to the So You Want to Be a Marine Biologist podcast. Hi, Kara. Really great to be here and great to have a chance to talk to you. Yeah. So I'm so excited to chat with you today and learn more about your story. It was really fun researching you and just the amazing things that you've done. I want to take it back to the beginning a little bit with you. You grew up in the American Midwest and you moved to Canada later on, but how did you get interested in whales? I mean, the American Midwest is not anywhere near any oceans at all. And a large body of your work is centered around the ocean. When I was young, I started visiting on vacation, you know, the Atlantic, going over to New Jersey, you know, uh, Atlantic City, you know, before the casino time was actually, it wasn't quite sleepy, but it was a place where you could touch real ocean and swim in it and jump the waves and, and all of that. And, and I determined from those early days that I was always going to live by the ocean. And so when I left home, you know, having made other trips, you know, to Maine and West Coast and that sort of thing, I decided that I was going to go to Canada and go out to the West Coast to Vancouver and Vancouver Island, get a cottage on the beach and look at the waves and see what was out there. And at that time, I had no interest, you know, no knowledge or interest in whales. And it was just, uh, you know, a couple of years later 
that I got invited as a sound man on a short documentary film to try to find killer whales or orcas in the wild off northern Vancouver Island. And so four of us very naively set sail in a, an engineless sailboat, 32-foot sailboat, uh, which was a bit crazy uh, because we didn't have a lot of sailing experience either. I mean, one of us did, fortunately. But uh, we, you know, we had all these disasters at the beginning, you know, lo- losing a man overboard, fortunately recovered, running into the rocks, wandering from Canadian waters uh, into the San Juans. And, you know, just, I mean, it was, it was p- pathetic, really, beginning. But we, you know, we got our act together and braved a few storms and got up to northern Vancouver Island and lo and behold, found these killer whales, orcas. I think I'm, I'm going to call them orcas. That's more what we use. Although still, when you're a scientist studying them, you use the term killer whales in the literature. So, but orcas is easier, and it's you know it reflects more of what they're like. So we we found these orcas, and the amazing thing was that we realized pretty soon that you could identify them as individuals. So there, and we started giving names for them. So there was Stubbs, who was an old, older female with a kind of jagged dorsal fin. You know, that's the top fin on the, on the whales. And Nicola had a little slice or a nick at the, near the top of her fin. And uh, Wavy was a big bull with, you know, a wavy back, you know, back part of his trailing edge of his fin. And, and so we started to see that these, these whales had, you know, that this is where they were hanging out because day after day we would see them. We had about three months that first summer. And, uh, that was, uh, that was a turning point for me. I kept, you know, I've always kept a journal. So I, I had a, I had journals about that and about halfway through that summer, the, somebody named Michael Big, Michael A. Big, who, who was uh, commissioned to study the whales in a formal way to see if they should be taken for captivity, if there were, whether there were too many being taken. Because there was no census. This is early 1970s. We knew nothing about them. A lot of people thought they were dangerous, highly dangerous, although they were already starting to prove you know, in captivity, not to be, not to be so dangerous. But uh, anyway, he developed this photographic identification method to identify the ind- each individual orca from its dorsal fin and and the saddle patch right behind the the dorsal fin. Sometimes using the eye patch, you know, that white patch that orcas have, and the the surprising the amazing thing was that it was not just that you could identify a few of them like we had done with Stubbs and Nicola and Wavy but every single orca could be identified in this method and these were long lived markings that they had so over you know theoretically we thought well if we came back maybe we'd see them again right. so that's yeah so that that's how I got started so I was not a biologist I um, just became obsessed 
with them. And that, that's always a good recipe for, you know, getting, uh, getting your feet wet and, you know, getting totally into a, a subject. And, and so uh, it was just going back year after year and just, you know, really absorbing all of that and working with the scientists. And uh, eventually, I mean, there's a lot of, I don't want to f- flash forward too far because there are a lot of other steps, but it, it was learning by accretion, but learning with the scientists and then becoming a scientist myself in that process that was a sort of organic way of doing it. So it's not, not you know, I don't have a PhD. I don't have the, the usual uh, letters after my name, but, but I write lots of papers and, and do all that work that, um, that's fun to do. Yeah. And I feel like nowadays the PhD has become just, well, it's something I want to do my research. So I feel like I have to get the PhD in order to do the research. And I really like the path that you took is that I found my passion and I was able to learn and grow from there and be actually get that experience and know that's really what you wanted to do. And you just did it. (laughs) And that's actually been the way I've lived my life. I mean, I was determined, along with wanting to live by the sea always, which I pretty much kept to a a short period in the mountains of British Columbia, not counting that. But I think the, you know, following your interests, I mean, it's the most efficient way to learn anything and to do things. If you're not excited by what you're doing, it's, it's, it's hard work, you know. You know, if you could figure out a way, this was my challenge in my 20s, was how to figure out a way of making a living, supporting myself, and eventually a family, but um, doing what I wanted to do. You know, not necessarily working nine to five, ideally not working at all nine to five, just working all the time on what you wanted to do. Yeah. Before we continue with your story, I want to circle back. You said you use killer whales in literature, but primarily orcas. So, like, why? I guess I always call them orcas for clarification because they're not actually whales; they're cousins of the dolphin. So, why is that used in literature? Yeah, that's a that's a good question. I think because some of the first scientists who wrote about them used it in literature. That's kind of a weird answer, but it's probably. It's probably down to that because a common name, you know, common names are just common names and they can change over time. And some species have alternate common names. And actually, if you, if you look in the encyclopedias and books, they always say killer whale or orca. So technically it has the other common name as well. So either one could be used, but I think it's just convention. But if you submit a paper to, a journal and you've called them orcas, they're going to think it's a kind of woolly uh, research, you know, so you have to use the the term killer whale in a formal way. It's like using somebody's first and last name, maybe, you know? Yeah. I did not know that. That's really interesting. And I, I like that. I didn't realize that you could use, so I knew with the dorsal identification, that's fairly uniform, I think, across all cetaceans. I know dolphin researchers, they they do dorsal shots for identification as well. 
but the saddle patch and the eye as well. I didn't realize that those could be helped to identify individuals. Makes sense. You use whatever you can you could get, you know. I mean, there was one one whale, female whale, who had a tumor at the side of her head, you know, that it we don't know how it happened, but it was something that was very identifiable. But in fact, with a lot of dolphins, yes, as you say, the dorsal fin is key, but humpback whales, it's um, tails, you know, the underside of their flukes. And right whales, it's the callosities, you know, the whitened, roughened patches of around the head, you know. Yeah, and that's really, really uh, unique to each individual if you get a sharp photograph of it. So it's... It's like their freckles. Their freckles are unique. Yeah. Those techniques evolved from plains of Africa where, you know, where they'd started to identify elephants by the the little nicks on their ears and, and giraffes from the spots. Apparently the spots and giraffes are unique for each one, that, those patterns, which I, I find amazing. I mean, I, I can't see it at all, but, but you know, my friends who are giraffe scientists can see it. That's so cool. Yeah, I didn't know that either. It makes sense. I, I know they have like different gradients in color, but I haven't really paid attention to the pattern differences. Kind of like whale sharks and manta rays. They have the different patterns identifying. Nature is just so fascinating, isn't it? It is. So cool. So you're doing this research. What inspired you to start writing your own books? I mean, you wrote, was Orca the Whale Called Killer your first book? Yes, that was my first book. What inspired that? Well, I just it was spending all those summers out with them in the wild and, and realizing that, uh, well, there was no book on killer whales. You wrote the book. Yeah, which, which was really, you know, surprising to me. And so I started, I started with it, you know, pitching articles, you know, to National Geographic and Defenders and other American and Canadian magazines and, and British BBC Wildlife. And I was, so I was selling articles to all these places and then realizing more and more, mm, this is a book and I really should try and do it. And I thought I would just dash off a book and, and it took me four years of, you know, embarrassing apprenticeship with lots of drafts. I think it, it worked out to something like 13 drafts in the end. And then trying to sell it, you know, I, I tried on my own for a while and I had some interest and then it fell through. And then, you know, one thing after another, I finally got one publisher to recommend an agent and she sent it to 22 publishers who turned it down. Wow. And the 23rd accepted it. <laughs> so it was, you know, I, you know, it was, it was a saga, you know, of four years, but it, it got published. And then, you know, all I wanted from that book was hopefully a good review or two. And it had amazing reviews and, you know, it's still in print today. So it's like 40 years later in a, in a, you know, I've, I've done new editions of it every once in a while. So I did one a couple of years ago, the same title, but you know, it's very, it's kind of the story of my, I always say the story of my misspent youth. 
because we, you know, I used journal entries in it as well as the science and how we were learning it step by step and, you know, seeing that, you know, the day that we found orcas feeding side by side with minke whales, you know, and we, and we'd read these accounts of them eating minke whales. Well, why weren't, why were they feeding side by side, you know, and then, and then you learn that actually they're eating salmon and we finally saw them eating salmon, which took quite a while. It turns out that they're dedicated salmon eaters, and even of you know only a, a small number of salmon species, the Chinook in particular. You know, m- my great luck was to be able to see these things as we were learning them, and so I could recreate the idea that we when we didn't know anything, and then we learned it step by step, and and the excitement of that and you know initially maybe thinking is it true or isn't it or you know and then you you know you um you you find out so like a like a detective right how exciting is that you're like groundbreaking killer whale research orca research right like that is so cool you know it was luck as i say i didn't come to it with an interest with a big interest in whales, only the ocean. The ocean got me there, I guess. So that that and that has kept as a constant through my life in other all all the other topics, all the other areas of, of research and and also popular writing that I've done, you know, centered on the ocean. So I am curious, like we said, and like we talked about, like a lot of your work focuses on whales specifically, but just the ocean in general. But you've had, I mean, you've written a book about ants and like you've kind of gone down other rabbit holes. What inspired those? I mean, I know the the Earth Dwellers, your book about ants was a trip to Costa Rica with E.O. Wilson, who is just one of like, probably one of the most popular and well-known uh, naturalists in the world. So I just, I think thought that was fascinating that you got to go on that trip. How did that come about? Well, yes, that that's my excursion away from the ocean. So, but um, I had a fellowship at MIT, and in the uh, in the late eighties, mid eighties, nineteen eighties, and you could take any courses you wanted at Harvard and MIT. And I'd always, uh, you know, I knew about E.O. Wilson, and um, I thought, well, that's a good way to learn evolutionary biology. So it was his introductory course that he taught along with you know Stephen Jay Gould was in the next lecture hall doing it from a more geological point of view so I had the two of them for that full year going back to back and I just started talking and E.O. Wilson has he was such a great teacher he's he kind of had this method of just going on bended knee to the to the audience or to the reader when he writes, you know, and to really communicate, to make sure he was being understood, you know, and had all these strategies for doing it. Very clever. And that was in a way a different kind of apprenticeship in looking at, at um, how he had led his life and how he'd studied animal societies and starting with, uh, with ants who were his totemic, species you know that he first collected in the you know in the fields in alabama and then gone up to harvard so i i got to know him and then was just 
lucky. He invited me on an expedition to Costa Rica with his mentor, who had first brought him to Harvard, and they had not been in the field for 30 years. Wow. So they were just, you know, tearing up the place. They were, they were laughing and stories, and, and they let me turn on the tape recorder and just leave it on. So I had, a, I had a week of just amazing material and, you know, very, very rich, a week or two weeks almost, I think. And then, you know, then after that, and, and then I was thinking, that was an article. I was thinking that that's going to be a fantastic article. Because my, my approach to doing these things, if I'm doing a popular work, is to bring the reader into the field and to really make them feel and smell it and taste it and hear everything that's going on. And the way you can, the method for doing that is really to get far more material than you're ever going to need. And then also get it in such a, such detail that you can really recreate the scene for your reader. And, and so, um, so after writing a couple articles, it started growing on me that that could be a book. And, and I talked a lot more to Wilson and to Bill Brown, the mentor who was in the field with him and spent time with him up. He was at Cornell up at Ithaca. And it just, the more I thought about it and, you know, read a lot of the stuff, which was all foreign to me, that whole literature, you know, I didn't know anything about ants to start with, but I was learning fast and, but I also, taking it back to the ocean and to whales, I also thought, here's social behavior on a micro scale. So you can get 30 different species of ants on a single log in the rainforest. And some of them would be discrete. They'd be so small that the whole world, the whole population or colony of that ants, not the whole population, but the whole colony would be in something you know, a few, like a foot across, you know, and you could, you can discreetly study that. And because workers are like cells, you can study casts by removing some workers. You can do some kinds of acceptable manipulation that you can certainly cannot do with charismatic social mammals. So it was, it was interesting. And I could see that they could learn a lot about social behavior and evolutionary biology much faster uh, than we could. And, and I started to appreciate how difficult it was, what we were trying to do with the whales, that it was, you know, we'd taken on the most difficult species to try and piece together uh, social behavior, for example. And, and that's why it's really taken decades for all these scientists working all over the world to come up with the kinds of things in entomology you could have done in four or five years. That's amazing. So you had already written your, your first book when, before you went to Harvard and met E.O. Wilson and took his class and everything. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And, and a couple other books too before that. Yeah. So I'm curious, you know, I feel like you had already establish yourself as an author and like he's written a massive amount of articles and books as well. 
Did working with him, did that influence your writing at all and kind of give you a different perspective on it or just kind of like helped you grow as a writer a bit? I, it did. It did help me grow as a writer. I, I was thinking that, I mean, I liked the way our schedule in the jungle was like going out very, very early in the morning, you know, before dawn when the aura pendula are screaming in the trees, uh, the birds, and and getting out there and doing a day's work before lunchtime. And then after lunch, Wilson would, would take a 20-minute nap you know, and I was, I was bunking, I had the top bunk, you know, so I, I could hear him, but he'd never snored or anything, but he got out of bed and then he went, he, he would just go right, you know, straight outside the, the cabin, which, which were right at the edge of the rainforest and sit in a chair and, and write a chapter. You know, I mean, he had it in his head. I mean, this is, I know he had a, an amazing, editor who worked in his office, you know, Kath- Kathleen Horton, who uh, stayed with him, I think, worked on most of his books with him and stayed there. You know, she'd probably do some of the references and, you know, things like that. But he he um, he did it without a fuss just because he loved doing it. So I think it was his enthusiasm and, you know, positivity um, rather than making it a big chore to write, which a lot of writers do, and I'm certainly guilty of it sometimes, you know, that because it is, it's it's hard, you know, you're you're not meant to to come up with something reasonable in one draft, you know, or or even three or four drafts sometimes, you know, it, it's it's not how well you write, it's how well you rewrite in in a lot of cases, and but he's he was he was an inspiration. Yeah, I really like that. It's not how well you write, it's how well you rewrite. Because, yeah, the first draft, you're like, oh, it's okay. But you do, you have to keep going at it. That makes perfect sense. Yeah, and that also relieves you of the stress of writing that first draft if you keep that in your mind, because you know you're not going to make it perfect. Just get the best you can down there, down on paper, and then you massage it, you know, and you start to work it. And then, you know, I have, I have a process of generally writing in longhand, but sometimes on, on the computer, but then printing out drafts, editing on paper works for me. And then I input the corrections and start again, you know, fresh looking paper and, and version and, you know, take it out to a cafe or something like that, where you can, get some uh, headspace that's clear without any distractions and give it a, you know, pretend you didn't write it, but you're just trying to, you know, make it good. It's, it's, it's a process rather than something that you write it and that's it. Right. Right. That makes perfect sense. So you're writing it really, I mean, what you did to describe EO Wilson's, methods, right? You said he gets on bended knee and really tries to draw the readers. And that's how I felt with your writing. You really made it very relatable. And it was just simple to understand. And, and I was curious, you know, what methods you approach it with? Like, how do you cater to the reader as well as you do? Because I, I found it very relatable. And some of the subject matter that you're covering 
is higher level stuff, really. It could just be a scientific paper, but you break it down so that it's not just facts and figures and whatever, but it's actually interesting. You're telling a story while you do it. Well, oh, thanks a lot for saying that. I mean, that that's exactly what I'm trying to do, whether I succeed all the time. It's really, it is a lot of it is to try to reach readers. I think you need to imagine them, you know, and, and you have to almost become them in a way. Certainly when you're editing, you have to read it in that kind of fresh way as if you don't know anything about it. And that, that, that is difficult. You cannot do it right after you write a first draft. You have to put them away or you have to go somewhere else to do it. I do at least physically have to go away, you know, usually maybe next day to edit what I might have written the previous day and then just really look at it from, you know, make sure there's, you're taking readers step by step through information, experience, narrative. If you, if you can get the sense of narrative with writing, then whenever humans get the idea that there's a story involved, there's a, a peaking of interest, you know, there's a, so it's just, I think it's just doing that over and over again, you know, and, and making a lot of mistakes, but, you know, gradually getting to the point where, where you could start to do it. I used to write lots of rules for, for writing and editing and have them up all over the room and, you know, but I, I think it becomes, you know, after a while, it, you know, some of them are in there. doesn't mean I write any better for first drafts, you know, they're still miserable, you know. I always remember, I don't know if you remember the American humor writer, Thurber, James Thurber. He's, he was early New Yorker. He was one of the three people who made the New Yorker what it is. And I was lucky to have a Thurber writer in residence years ago. And one of the things I came across was this story from his wife. And, you know, and this is a brilliant, brilliant writer. And the story from his wife was that she'd found a, a, some writing that he was doing on the top of their piano. And she said, Christ, Thurber, this is high school stuff. You know, <laughs> and she just, you know, thought, but, you know, he was pointing out, well, that's, that's an early draft, you know, I've got, there's a lot more to go on it. Yeah, I think that's, that's what it is. So, um, yeah, keep at it, people who are writing out there. The other thing to say about writing is it's an amazing way to get involved in marine biology or in any science subject. Because if you can write, there are all sorts of employment opportunities, you know, that, that present themselves. You can, you can write your way into a lot of different jobs if you can do it well. Could you give a couple of examples? Like I have some ideas in head. Well, in the first place, you can pitch, you know, I, so many of the ideas I've had over the years and b not just book ideas, but ideas for conservation projects and science projects go back to an email or a letter, you know, originally a letter, but an email like, and one page, not long, but very persuasive. So persuasive writing at the very basic level 
if you can do that really well, you're going to have a much better chance of, of getting a job. I have a lot of people who write to me who want to, you know, do something related to killer whales want advice and, or want, you know, think that I, I have a university position, which I don't have, but, uh, you know, they write to me and, and I could sort out, I could tell you that 1% of them have written an engaging letter that would make me want to hire them. Of course, I'm not in a position to do it. There are a couple of people over the years that I've taken on as a print, you know, apprenticeship type thing. But, um, and that was a very, very good letter, you know, and, and it sort of opens the, the discussion and then you talk to them and maybe they write more. And, but anything you can do to improve your writing, I think that's one of the tools in the toolbox for, for scientists that, you know, and you have to have that if you're going to convince people of conservation and, you know, to get your science out into the world. And if you can use social media to do it as well, that's that's another kind of writing, as it were. You know, it's, it's pithy, it's short, but it's it's very, very important. Even those tweets, you know. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So you, again, you've done a lot of on whales and cetaceans, but you've taken these other rabbit holes. <laughs> You're taking these other side roads, right? So what inspired these? You've written about creatures of the deep. Uh, your new book is about plank- plankton. You know, what inspires these other deviations from the killer whales? Well, the whales certainly got me, you know, thinking about other creatures in the sea. And and the first book I did in that, I have a sort of creatures, um, I call it the, the, the creatures books. And there, there are four, four of them now, so and maybe growing. But uh, the first one was Creatures of the Deep, which you know took readers layer by layer to the bottom of the ocean. In one of the narratives, I had four narratives in the book, and the second was taking, going from the smallest, the plankton, up to large predators. You know the the whole uh, pyramid, and the third was more of a geological approach, you know, going along the world's longest mountain range, which is under the sea, mm-hmm. and finding the um, hydrothermal vents, you know, that there was life going down there far below the sea where there was, you know, no photosynthesis going on. And how could it possibly exist? And at fabulous temperatures, you know, hotter than pizza ovens, you know, much hotter than pizza ovens. And then the fourth part I did was looking at the census of marine life. So the the challenge to try to come to grips with how many species there were in the sea. And we still haven't done it. But the census of marine life over 10 years, which concluded in uh, 2010 or 2011, found another couple hundred thousand species was it a couple hundred thousand or was it 20,000? Ooh. No, I think it was only 20,000 species because it's about, that's right, it's about 2,000 a year that we're discovering or that we're identifying. Just mind boggling. 2,000 species a year and we're still going. Like there's just so much unknown in on our own planet. 
I know, I know. It's it's in some people say it's much less known than the moon and other. Of course, there isn't the diversity on the moon of life, but you know, in terms of mapping the 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 bottom of the sea, just a tiny fraction. Estimates of the number of species in the sea could be a million. You know, maybe we know two hundred and fifty thousand, two hundred sixty thousand. I think it is now. There's a lot more that we don't know than what we do know, and so that that attracts me. And that attracted me to that book. And also the fact that at that time, when I wrote the first edition of Creatures of the Deep, there'd only been one expedition ever to the bottom of the sea. And that that was that one in 1960. The Trieste. Yeah, in Trieste, yeah, famous. And then when I did the second edition of Creatures of the Deep 10 years later, or eight, I could forget how many... Cameron had gone down, you know, the Titanic director. And so I could talk about that as well. And that was really exciting. And now there's a, a third uh, person, Victor Vescovo, who is, who is going down every other week. I mean, he's, he's, he's really cracked it because the other two vehicles that went to the bottom, they were retired after that. They were worried. They thought the intense pressure, you know, of being so far down, they were not going to survive if they if they used that vehicle again. But Viscovo has managed to develop a a sturdy vehicle, I guess, and he's taken all kinds of people down there. I would I would give anything to go down there. And I'm uh, you know who knows, but but that would be a dream. But now he's gone down to other deepest parts and other parts of the ocean, and you know made a lot of concrete scientific findings as as well as alerted people to the importance of protecting the bottom and you know how much we don't know and we really need to you know invest a lot more in in learning about that yeah especially as we look into you know there's some mining talks in the deep sea ocean which we're just kind of like putting bulldozers in unknown lands and we don't know anything about it we don't we haven't mapped it we don't know what's really there and what we're doing so that's a it's good points. I try to bring that up because we don't know. We don't know. There's so much out there that we just have no idea. And we and it's important to understand if we're going to mess with it, right? If we're just going to leave it alone, it's fun to know. But if we're going to mess with it, we, like, we need to know. It's important. Yes. And we are messing with it in a big way, more and more. And so, so that book really led me into doing a, a younger kid's book called Weird Sea Creatures, you know, just sort of celebrating the, the wonderful weirdness down there. And uh, then I did another one called S- Strange Sea Creatures. Like the publisher publisher gives the names and sometimes... Publisher's like, this is what's going to sell. Yeah, exactly. So it, it, that one had more in different layers. And, and one of the parts, one of the layers was the upper layer where the plankton's coming and I started to get really interested in this plankton because it was macro photography at night in the open ocean. And I had a handful of, of pictures of that in S- Strange Sea Creatures. And I thought, oh, you know, I, I started looking around and getting thousands of photographs to look at and talking to people who were doing this. And it was really new stuff, you know, in the last few years this idea of blackwater photography. And and so that's how I just got interested in 
decided you know, that it had to be a book. The interesting thing was partly that we thought about a kid's book and, and fairly short, you know, like 80 pages or 90 pages. And as I was working on the book, I realized the subject is bigger and bigger. And, and so I started writing more and, you know, bringing different areas of the world. So there's the Gulf Stream off Florida and there's Japan and Philippines, the White Sea in, uh, in Russia, in the Arctic and the, and a few other areas. And I just, I realized that, uh, there was a great citizen science story here. There was a conservation story because these areas needed to be looked at for protection, which they weren't being, you know, and there was this, um, fantastic story of how they were getting the photographs in these difficult conditions and, you know, who had done it first, a little bit of history and, and then it all in the background of the world's greatest migration, arguably. It is. And it happens every day. Every, every, every day at, at night. Yeah, twice every night, twice a night. And, you know, and that's it for me to call it the greatest migration. You know, I've worked with humpbacks and, uh, you know, it's kind of like uh, uh, going against my, my whale side. <laughs> you know, it's in terms of the number of individuals and the number of species that are doing this. It has to be the many, many trillions. And the fact that it happens twice every night, coming up from the deep, you know, not the absolute deep, but, but deep waters, up to the top and then back down before sunrise. I, I think it qualifies for, for greatest. It's amazing. It really is. And, it, you know, it's like millions of individuals, right? Like whales might be hundreds. And the funny thing is, before World War II, well, I, actually during World War II, the German U-boats, they were able to suddenly, with sonar, figure out, you know, they were trying to measure the bottom or trying to uh, look at the bottom and they kept noticing that the bottom of the sea was moving up every night, you know, that it, and they, and they, they, it was just completely puzzling. And it was only after World War II with, with uh, studying lantern fish and, and seeing that there was this movement going on, you know, from the depths up, you know, and seeing that it was consistent over the ocean. I think one of my favorite uh, whale biologists, uh, Georges Cuvier in France, who's the Cuvier's beaked whale estate, is named after him. He had actually noticed it in a pond, you know, that there was this vertical migration at night. But, you know, people thought, well, that that's that pond, you know, and for, for some reason it has this weird behavior. But in fact, it's happening everywhere from Arctic to tropics and and in ponds. So it's it's pretty interesting. It's all connected. Look at that. Ponds to the great big ocean, tropical to Arctic. Amazing in Antarctic. So did you go blackwater diving? Have you gone? I haven't been. It's all vicarious for me. To be able to describe it, I mean, I, I talked to so many blackwater divers, and particularly, well, Mike Bartik, you know, was helpful in completely recreating the sensation of diving. And I put that whole section in the book. But um, 
I'm uh, I'm I'm not a diver, and you know, s- with some of my medical conditions, I can't dive now. So I'm um, I'm vicarious. So you know, I can I can live through um, the photographs, which are absolutely stunning, and and the people who do it, and appreciate their artistry uh, from from the top. But I will say, one of my first times of getting interested about this actually goes back to being out in a small boat. We had all-night whale watches for orcas. When we were early on, when we were trying to figure out what their behavior was like, and I would go out there. I love this part of the trip because I you go out in a, in a dinghy and you go even a mile or more out. And the um, phosphorescence, you know, as the trails of seals and and uh, fish were going by, you know, were, were always fascinating. And then I just started with a light looking down and I could see the, you know, the, bu- you know, it was a really rich plankton environment that was supporting all the salmon and all the life that was going on there. So even from the surface at night, you know, you've got a lot of time on your hands while you're waiting for orcas at night. You know, I could appreciate and see what was going on down below. And it was, it was, it was stunning and intriguing. Yeah, absolutely incredible. So I don't think we define what blackwater diving is. So for listeners, blackwater diving is not only diving at night, but you're not going to the bottom. You like usually do for diving. You're diving in potentially hundreds of feet of water, usually hundreds of feet of water. Or 5,000 feet. Or 5,000 feet of water. And you're only, I mean, you're not going down that deep. Obviously, you can't. But you're going down like maybe 50-ish feet, maybe 100, starting there and working your way shallower, according to some of these photographers that I was reading their stories of. But it's all of these amazing deep sea creatures coming up at night. So like there's photographs of the blanket octopus in here, which is just so fun. And like tiny baby paper nautiluses, which... Is I mean, amazing. I learned that salps are actually, so listeners, uh, salps are like a translucent, I don't know how to, how to describe totally what they look like. They're gelatinous, they're a tunicate. They're like a colony of little tunicates that move along in the water column. And they don't look like much. They just look like a chain of clear blobs, basically, but they move along on their own volition. And I learned in this book that they're actually habitat. There's so many pictures of so many different creatures just living on these seemingly translucent blobs of nothing and they're not they're just a little ecosystem yeah they become an ecosystem as well you know it's interesting it's like the rainforest too you get the you know the plants living on plants and you know on top of other plants and and then insects within a you know the at the top of the rain at the rainforest living in um, in that whole system multiple insects it is a whole other world. I think it started, the Blackwater, should we say it started with Blue Water? Because uh, there were, yeah, there were a few photographers who were starting to just get dropped off or take their boat out far enough to just dive in the daylight. There was a, a pioneer photographer in Hawaii named Chris uh, Newbert who, who started do it at night, you know, and a little bit, a little bit dangerously, I think originally, but. As most pioneers are, they live a little dangerously. They push the envelope and 
but but amazing photographs. He did a a landmark book that when we saw this in the 1980s, I think it had you know creatures as you'd never seen them before, but not macro photography really. You know, so that that really is something that's you know the lenses we have today and the the lights. The lights are a big part of it too. Being able to light the area enough to take the photographs, but not scare everybody away. You know, all the all the animals. I mean, some of them will go go down, and and some are attracted to light. So you're not necessarily getting a statistical sample, but you're you're getting so much interesting life right. and new species. And that's the other part of it, right? Like traditionally plankton research, and you mentioned this in the book as well, is done by plankton toes, right? They literally have a net called a plankton net and you tow it behind a boat usually. And it has a little cup at the bottom that collects all the samples and you just see what you get. But the problem is you're towing at a high velocity usually. And so you're kind of crushing things as you go along. These are tiny, teeny, tiny little animals and they just, they're fragile. So taking out that movement pattern, right? And that like capturing, you're, the only thing you're capturing is their image and you're not physically touching them usually. So you can get so much detail. Yeah, that's that's perfectly described. And there are some of the photographers now and citizen scientists who are working with Smithsonian and other scientists who take a sample, you know, and, and they actually resist touching anything. You know, it has the ethic of, leaving them as they are, but they've agreed to take some for DNA barcoding, you know, very, very small number, and they have to be collected very carefully. The photograph remains the key thing because those flamboyant fins on a, on a flounder, you know, are completely, are destroyed if, if they get crushed. And so if you want to see what all the barbells, you know, the hanging parts coming off, mm-hmm. off them. Because the the evolution of planktonic creatures in a lot of cases is completely different from the adults. You know the, you know the the, the evolutionary pressures on them, so that they that's why they look so differently as you know juveniles and uh, larvae compared to the adults. And and that's that's been a fantastic advanced because this the dna plus the photographs in many cases have allowed scientists to link the two you know they they didn't necessarily know it was the same species suddenly you realize well just to take a, a flounder for example suddenly you realize a flounder as larvae is has eyes on either side of its head and has this fabulous fin that looks like you know an old style lady's hat with the feather and everything coming out and then when they uh, settle at the bottom as they do as adults the uh, one eye moves to the other side of the head so they're both on the same side they lose the fins you know it all changes and they spend the rest of their lives not colorful as they were as as youngins but you know, right in the in the mud in the sand at the bottom, with both eyes looking up and trying to hide, you know. So, it's completely different strategy, you know. And it, and that's one same species. It's amazing. 
It's absolutely amazing. So I want to flip flop for a minute with you. Something I was really curious about, we're going back to whales. You literally wrote the handbook on whale watching, which I thought was really interesting. And you kind of gave, I read a little bit of the history about whale watching. It literally was like a dollar to go out and see gray whales started in San Diego, California. And now it's grown into this like $2 billion worldwide industry. So I was really curious on some of your perspectives on whale watching, because I know it can be controversial with, you know, a lot of the times when whales are aggregating, it's because they're mating and we don't want to have tons of boats out there interfering with that. But in the same time, like if it, it's kind of like aquariums and zoos, right? It inspires people when they see these animals and it, it provides that ability to connect with them. So there's that side to, to just bring the public into a domain that they wouldn't usually be able to see. So I was kind of curious on your perspective on whale watching and your, some of your tips from your handbook. Well, it's, it's a good question and, it, and it's, it's topical because we are rethinking the way we whale watch, you know, and I think, Early on, we saw whale watching as, as all good and something that could only, you know, get people interested in the ocean and conservation and everything, which it still does, of course. And we saw the benefits to, uh, well, to the whales in terms of research that went into them, because there was a lot of science that was conducted, for example, off Provincetown in Boston for years and still still happens through for example center for coastal studies working with the dolphin fleet the who were the first whale watching company on the east coast of the u.s and there were there was you know many many papers that came out of that work and and science some good science phds you know all kinds of stuff because they had naturalists who were prospective scientists on all the boats so it it's you know it's there's been tremendous benefits but as whale watching has grown we as you as you say uh, have started to think about how it's affecting the whales themselves and and we do and we've started to study you know over the last 20 years the effects on whales and and there are demonstrations of, of um if you if i take whales in the larger sense of of all whale species and dolphins, you know, there are cases now of um, populations that are distracted from feeding or nursing and that sort of thing by, by being whale watched intensively. And I think, you know, we have to do it more carefully. I think it needs to be spread out. So I, when I mass this and I do speak about whale watching still, and in fact, it, um, going to be at a conference, the main conference on marine protected areas, mm -hmm. which is held every few years, called International Marine Protected Area Congress. And it's going to be in, in Vancouver in February. And I'm, I'll be speaking also on whale watching there too, and how to manage it in the context of marine protected areas, you know, like the National Marine Sanctuaries around the U.S. And so I have thought a lot about this. I think it's, I think we need to spread our footprint on the water. You know, we, we talk about having a light footprint when we go into a national park or something. It's similar out there. And, you know, the way we do that is, um, I think, by not targeting whales so much, you know, 
looking at the whole ocean, you know, spending time showing people other species, certainly by keeping a distance. You know, stepping back for a minute, the the problem with whales, you know, it's not a problem, it's not their problem, it's our problem, is that they're curious and they come by our boat or our, you know, whatever. And we take that, that they're, they love us. And we get a reinforcement from it. Everybody does. Scientists do as well. And, and, and there is some recognition with populations that you study regularly. But that builds an expectation in customers, you know, in, in prospective whale watchers. They want to go out there and, and have that experience. And if you demand that experience, if, the, if there are only 100,000 whale watchers in the world, that's, that's probably easily tolerable. But if you've got, you know, now I, the la- latest estimates, I think, went up to about 13 million globally watching whales could well be more now although of course we had a gap with covid but but if you have that many people wanting close encounters that's that's trouble that's important there aren't enough whales to go along to go around you know and, and people used to say um or not not too long ago you know you have to be careful of not hugging the whales to death you know it's really um yeah. It, it, so you have to have respect. And I think we do have to get back to a more ecological way. The way you watch birds, you don't go up to a bird and, you know, try to interact with it. You're actually quietly behind a, a blind and you're trying to witness natural behavior. If we think about trying to witness natural and how exciting it is to see natural behavior rather than to see them just coming over to us, you know, and use your binoculars. And, and, and sometimes they will come over anyway, because they are curious. So, you know, but, but have, but boats that are actually going after them, that's, that's really the insidious thing I, that's happened and, and it's become really common, even though it's, it's natural, you want to give your customers a good time, you know, but, you know, we have to be mature about it or, and also, you know, you look at land-based whale watching. Land-based, you don't disturb them. It's absolutely fabulous in some parts of the world. California coast for gray whales. I drove a few years ago. I drove down the California coast and kept stopping, you know, because there are gray whales coming up, and you know, and it was just, you know, and then then I was in Monterey and went jogging, as as I do every other day and saw four species in one day along Monterey Bay, just outside of Monterey, you know, gray whales, rizzos, dolphins, killer whales, and humpbacks. And there they were, they were all out there, you know, and some of them fairly close. So it is possible to do some of this without disturbing them. You have to take a bit more time to do it and thought thoughtfulness. So, And more patience, right? I mean, your example of bird watching, I can't think of anything that requires more patience other than maybe golf. But and I think bird watching still takes the, <laughs> I think I think bird watching still takes the cake on that one. <laughs> yeah. So and and if you you know if you see these BBC fabulous wildlife programs they put together on you know Planet Ocean and all of that, you know those photographers 
filmmakers spend uh, many, many days and weeks to get one shot. So they're, they're, they have the patience that really we all should start to acquire, I think, you know, along with, along with golfers and, uh, and bird watchers. <laughs> I want to get into your current role right now, and I'm going to read it because... You got, you got a couple titles here. So you're a research fellow at the Whale and Dolphin Conservation, and you're a co-chair at the IUCN Marine Mammal Protected Areas Task Force. What does that mean? It seems like those roles tie together really neatly and nicely. And what do you do with those as fellows and researchers? Yes, so they are together, those two roles. But the um, co-chair of the, of the task force for the International Union for Conservation of Nature, which is on marine mammal protected areas, is a sort of focused way to get some of the work I do with whale and dolphin conservation into into a different world, you know, into some of the larger policy-oriented and conservation-oriented world in different countries. Whale and dolphin conservation is a charity that's set, that was set up in the UK in uh, late 1980s and I started working for them a few years after they were started they have a branch a separate group you know that's part of us in North America based in near Boston and uh, also one in Germany and and so you know we attempt to work on whales globally so my part of it was uh, spatial you know thinking about what are the spatial needs of whales and dolphins? And, and this actually went back to my killer whale work. When I learned, that, when we learned really that those whales that like Wavy and Stubbs and Nicola were, were coming back every summer. So it was the same whales we were seeing every year. You know, sometimes a few new ones, but mostly the same individuals. And that suddenly meant that they had they had spatial requirements you know i mean there was this idea before that that uh, why do you need to protect whales or make protected areas for them because they're out there in the ocean they're swimming around and you know they've got the whole ocean you know what what do you want you know but in fact when we found out that they are coming back to the same areas repeatedly and uh, they have what's called site fidelity. We call it site fidelity. And that it was true not only of, of orcas, but it was true of humpback whales, you know, going back to Hawaii and the Dominican Republic, coming back up to Massachusetts and Stellwagen Bank. And the more we studied different whales, the more we found it was true with a lot of them. And the same with pinnipeds and sirenians and, and other marine mammals. So I, I wrote this book on marine protected areas for whales, which was a technical book. And in the process of that, did a lot of research to find all the areas worldwide where there was some protection for them in existing areas. Then I put it all on the map, you know, and, and we had a lot of maps in the book, but I also put it on a big wall size map and you know you looking at it what you realize is that these areas where there's some protection for whales and other marine mammals are just along the coastlines and around islands 
And so there's this great, huge area of the ocean. You know, all the high seas, the high seas is international waters, which is more than half of the ocean, but also even national waters that are, you know, further than a little bit out than, than the coast. And, and nobody's doing anything there. And also the marine protected areas that were created might have started out with a whale habitat idea, but then when they bring them in front of stakeholders and policymakers, the, the maps get redrawn. And so you might get a fraction of what's their actual habitat was. So that's where this task force came from through my work with whale and dolphin conservation. And in 2013, we decided we needed to really go back and look ocean by ocean at all the uh, marine mammal habitats, potential habitats, and bring the scientists together in a series of regional workshops. So we've had eight so far covering almost half the ocean mostly through the Southern Hemisphere. We had substantial funding from, from government funding and foundations. And, you know, bringing these people together, these scientists together, who were experts on blue whales and humpbacks and, you know, and uh, Galapagos sea lions and, and that sort of thing. And then um, trying to create candidate important marine mammal areas that then went for peer review so very, very tough audience of three or four panel of uh, peer reviewers uh, because that's the process of science. And then coming up with areas that we could have confidence for, and, and this could be a consistent method for doing this around the ocean. So it takes about eight months to do one region. We just did um, the Eastern Tropical Pacific from uh, Mexico actually tropical and temperate. So we did Mexico to Chile, just to give you an example. That was held in Costa Rica, you know, scientists from, you know, 20, maybe 15, 20 from Chile alone, because it's got such a long coast. And we spent a week with them intensively, but a lot of preparation before to bring the data in. And the data is all over the place. I mean, that's also another major problem. Whale research is recent and, the data is, it's all over the place in the sense that it's held by all kinds of different groups and bodies and individuals, but it's also, it's acoustic data. It's, it's transects, you know, which you, you, you're from the air and you're looking in a statistically significant way at, you know, where they're traveling and, and counting them you know, boat-based, all the different methods of science. But we had to kind of, we had to bring experts together who could assess that and then create, what we've created is a hands-on tool. So all these countries that are now starting to plan what to do in their waters, you know, how much is going to be developed for energy and, you know, whether it's wind or wind farms or whatever, which have some impact on cetaceans, fishing, every, every, all the shipping that's happening in the ocean. In order for us to have any impact or any say on whether whales are getting hit in certain areas, we have to have 
our marine mammal layer, you know, our areas available, widely available so that they can access them. And the bird people taught us a lot. You know, bird people are usually way ahead of us. Or they're always way ahead of us. They've got a lot more money. And and I, I mean us, the marine mammal people. Yeah. So, and there are many more bird watchers than there are whale watchers. And so, so they, we, we learn from them, from Bird Life International, which has, has created these important bird areas, now called important bird and biodiversity areas all over the world, you know, from 20, 30 years ago. So we're catching up with them mm -hmm. and it's, it's so exciting. I love this project. In December, I'll be in uh, Brazil and we're doing the other side of South America, the Southwest Atlantic. So uh, with scientists there. So, uh, so we're, we're just going to keep pushing maybe another five or six years. We'll have the whole ocean done. Then we'll start over again. <laughs> then we start over again. Yeah. Okay. So when you go down in December, are you actually, you're going out physically in the field and kind of looking and seeing what you see, or is this just like the week intensive of like analyzing the data and speaking with the scientists? I'll be disappointed if we don't get out on the water. We usually get out on the water, but we're, we're really working with the scientists in a room. You know, it's, it's sad, but that's, that's what it comes to eventually. I, you know, everybody just wants to go play in the field, but then you, you have to do something with what you learn. Exactly. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for that. That is what it comes down to. But you, you know, you hear great stories and usually they do take you out on one day. So, uh, so you get a little bit of a flavor, but yeah, no, it, it's going to be really exciting. I know a few of the researchers, one of whom actually helped me with whale watching in Brazil in the 1980s when there was no whale watching anywhere, you know, near there, but he did all this research. So I, I've been in touch with him for, uh, for decades. And I mean, he's a, very well-known conservationist. Yeah, it'll be great to see him in his own milieu, his own city and his own town. And he can introduce us to his whales, which is also nice, his right whales. Yeah. Whales are so, they're so aware, right? They have, there's so much intelligence there. So they, so I can imagine that the scientists that go out and spend time with them definitely have that sense of, proprietariness right like my whales let me introduce you to my whales <laughs> do you still feel that way oh absolutely yeah no I, uh, after being away from northern vancouver island for decades i took my family you know my children and my wife out to northern vancouver island went out on the water and the first pod that we see are the old, the ones I knew, top notches pod. Yeah, some of the ones had died. That you know, and I, I knew that. But there were several that were still alive because they're very long lived, from um, you know thirty years earlier, and it was, it was fantastic. And it was just one of those beautiful summer days, on Northern Vancouver Island. You know, the smell of the mountains and and the and the sea and and uh whales blowing all around the place and yeah and you know there's you're just suddenly seeing them and you're thinking wow that's they're still you know 
I mean, I, I sort of knew they were there, but I didn't know I'd go out and, and literally two hours later, they'd be the, and, and actually the same pod. It could have been any number of, you know, other pods from that community. Oh, that's so cool. That's so cool that that worked out like that. You mentioned you have children. We were chatting a little bit about that before the show. And one of your concerns, you know, when you were in your 20s is like, how do I make a career out of this and have a family and support a family doing this? And you said that you actually got to take some some of your children, maybe all of your children with you on some of your expeditions. What was that like? Having a family and doing all this traveling and amazing work. <laughs> well, you know, when they when they were really young, I couldn't take them. Or, you know, we had to have kind of close to home trips. And fortunately, we were living in Scotland, so you could see uh, dolphins occasionally right from our town. And, and then I would, you know, just, you know, drag them down the street. So it wasn't that. But that was pretty rare. And we started, I think we went as a family to Iceland when they were, they were ranging from about age seven to oh, 15 or so, 16. And that was magic. We went all, all around the coast and because I knew a lot of the whale watchers had helped set up whale watching in Iceland with workshops a few years before that, everybody took us out for free and we saw, we saw everything. You know, it was just, it's a fantastic place. I was a little bit nervous. Are they going to be okay at sea? And we were going far out to sea to try and find blue whales. And you know, it was rough, you know, and they were, you know, I found out they were all good sailors. I just had, I had one daughter who just kept asking me the entire time, how deep is it here, dad? You know, she was really worried about the amount of water that was below the boat, you know, to the bottom, which was kind of funny, but as long as we're floating on it, doesn't matter how deep it is. <laughs> Something like that, you know. And I and I, but I thought, but she was, she was a little bit worried. So, I didn't get seasick, but was a little bit worried. But uh, yeah, she's since crossed the Atlantic, so she's she's gotten over that fear. The youngest is now living in Iceland. He has his degree in in conservation science and and works with a whale watching company there. So following in dad's footsteps. Yeah, it's great. Yeah. Yeah. We sort of took them to different places. So I had one son who went to me, went to Japan with me and we did some, some harder things there, you know, not necessarily whale watching, but we, we did some. So it, it varied with, with the child. Usually we, my wife and I uh, would do, um, paired, you know, one, one child type experiences, and then somebody else gets the, the chance the next time. Very cool. Now, does your wife join you on your trips? Is she a researcher as well? She's a, she's a scientist, but she works on this very, very small stuff. <laughs> you know, she's, she's a cancer scientist. Yeah. So she's working on, um, trying to implement, um, methods for pathways for diagnosing different cancers, you know, so that it's done in a, in a uh, systematic and intelligent way, you know, with blood tests and that sort of thing. Cause a lot of people are not getting the right treatment for different things or the best treatment, let's say, but, you know, she comes along and, you know, enjoys it as well. And 
we have a lot of exchanges about biology, you know, so it's. Yeah, right. Just the different spectrums of it, human versus animal, like in, yeah, in the field versus in a lab. Which is always healthy. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Very cool. Well, at the end of each episode, I have a series of questions I like to ask. And this first one, I'm curious what your answer is. So what is your favorite sea creature and why? Oh, my goodness. I know. It's kind of a hard question. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm going to be a little bit boring and say orcas because, it. I mean, I. well, it would be, you know, it wouldn't be right, you know, if I said anything else. And I just, so many different, you know, rich experiences for so long. But there's certainly very special beaked whales you know that i that i like that are that are odd for different reasons there and there's some of these planktonic creatures that are stunning i mean people love you know squid and octopus uh you know we're learning more and more about them some of the books that are being written recently that are fabulous i wanted to actually say about the title of the book planktonia because that that has a backstory in the sense that it's a book about well, planktonia is not a word in English, uh, but it, it for me, I, I was so glad when I came up with it. It's actually a word in Finnish, which means plankton. So only in the Finnish language, I thought, well, what can conjure up this whole world of the blackwater uh, plankton and the predators that are that are going after it? So the the book covers, you know, also the, you know, has pictures of some of the predators largely small ones but you know still you know squid and uh, squid and octopus definitely want to get in on the action so they come up when all this vertical migration is happening and i just thought planktonia it's like the world of you know this kind of world it has a i don't know it has a kind of a to me a, a an aura of a fabled world it does. It, it seems it's more than just a plankton, right? It's more than just like the individual it kind of encompasses. Yeah. A whole new world or, you know, a village of, of it, right. The world of plankton. Yeah. So, so yeah, I got a little ways away from your question, but. That's okay. No, I love it. I love the book title. What does the ocean mean to you? Well, the ocean, I mean, it's um, every, you know, I, I think we have to think about every second breath is coming from the ocean. You know, it's, it's, it is, we are an ocean planet it really should be called ocean. You know, that's, has been said by other people, but it's, it's profound, but it's also very simple and straightforward and, and, and factual, you know, most of the, the earth is ocean. It wouldn't exist. All the life would not exist without it. So I think the, yeah. You know, they estimate uh, 50 to 80% of the production of oxygen comes from the ocean, and that's largely from plankton. And so, and that's phytoplankton, the plant plankton. You know, we, we wouldn't be able to exist without that. So the ocean is our lifeblood, you know, and we, we really need to protect it and keep it healthy, you know, and, and we, we have a lot of work to do. If you were given a blank check, unlimited funding for any project or projects up to three, what would you use the money for? Well, it's that 
project I was telling you about important marine mammal areas, and we have the money to identify all these areas. What we need next is the money to implement them in a in a in a way through all through the conservation of you know of of the species in and their habitats and and that part of that i think is getting researchers out into the field to create you know to develop long-term relationships with iconic as well as non-iconic creatures that are out there and to start to piece together how they how they live how they evolve you know their, their ecosystems and that takes a lot of money so i would i would put uh you know it's tempting i i when when you said uh, any amount of money i think that that really because uh, you, you posed the question to me even before we're talking now and and it it was kind of disturbing, actually. <laughs> what would I do? But I, I think you know, I think that was that would be where it would have to go because I think that would make the biggest difference that that I could somehow prod and you know help make it happen. So this kind of goes with like the thirty by thirty, right? Putting aside these marine protected areas, thirty percent of the ocean. Protected by 2030. Yeah, that's part of it. Effective. That's great. And so the money, so the money would be, it's not just, I don't know if people understand, maybe some of my listeners, we've talked about MPAs before on the show, but like getting an MPA in place isn't just, you know, a group of scientists getting together and saying, hey, we've seen orcas, killer whales, for example, right? In this area, it's vitally important. This is it. It's officially a protected area. Done. Walk out of the room. Wipe your hands. Right. It's it's you have to go to the lawmakers and the policymakers. And it's like years, sometimes a decade or more of going back and forth of, okay, well, what other stakeholders have have in place here? And then once and once it's actually, okay, this is the area. And it may have changed shape since the initial proposal. But once you get to that point, which is lots of time and money in and of itself, now what? Now you have to reinforce it. There has to be or educate people so that they know about it. Because if they don't know about it, or if they know about it and don't care, and there's not that stick to keep them, you know, keep them from caring or make them care, then it doesn't have any teeth. And it's just, it's just paper, right? It's just a piece of paper that nobody cares about. So that's, that's where all that money could go. <laughs> Perfectly illustrating. It is a complex, long process and expensive, you know, working with all the stakeholders and and trying to make something that works with the other uses that we need from the sea, you know, that we want to have, you know, available. But if we don't manage it in a sustainable way, we're not gonna we're not, we're not gonna have a future really. So so it's it's incredibly important to put that time in and do it. Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. What is your favorite field story or stories to tell? And this could be an amazing day on the field, which you've already shared some incredible stories already, or it could be a day where like things happen and it makes a great story now. Yeah. I, I don't know. I was starting to think that it was, yeah, that's it's, I mean, there's so many amazing times. I, you know what, I, I guess one of the ones was what I was starting to describe of coming back 
after that first summer because we had no idea what, whether we'd find the whales again, whether they'd, um, were, you know, if it'd be the same whales, killer whales, orcas, and what it would be like there. And um, it's, you know, to come back. And then again, we saw the same, some of the same whales, Wavy and Stubbs and Nicola on first or second time that we were, we were back. And, you know, it was a day that just, is kind of fixed in your mind. You know, you, you're on this sailboat and it's really moving and, and there's all kinds of stuff going on out there. And suddenly you see blows, you know, you've been looking for them and you see the blows, the spouts in the distance and, uh, and they're coming right for you, you know, and it's, I think that sense of when they were actually coming over to us, after being away all winter because you apparently they you can see them during the winter but the weather is so um, poor there you know consistently through the winter and it's dark uh, that um, and stormy that you um, you know summer is by far the best time and it's also when the orcas come into the to the estuaries to feed on salmon and you know, and they rest and they play and they rub on the beaches and all that stuff. So that, yeah, that was, you know, it was that sense of, of being part of their community almost. And, and I think, I always think of the time, the times we were on boats when, when they were just all around us and we weren't trying to do anything. We're just kind of living there with them. It was, it was very much like living with orcas in a way, you know, and I thought that was, Wow, what a what a great how lucky, you know, and what a great feeling. You think of those books about living with elephants, you know, the sci- scientists that that go to Africa and do that, you know, and it was sort of like doing that with with orcas which hadn't been thought about before that, you know, before people started doing that during that time. So, yeah, I think that's 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 certainly one of the highlights. The return, the great return. Very cool. At the end of each episode, I like to leave the listeners with a conservation ask to go forth and bring into the world. What would you like my listeners to take from your episode today? Kara, I think people who hear this and are, you know, are inspired or are inspired anyway about the ocean, you know, go, go down to the sea, or if you're not inspired, especially if you're not inspired by the ocean, go down to the sea and take a deep breath, you know, and, um, run along the beach, you know, or spend some time just staring out to sea and thinking about the amazing ocean and the planet that we live on. And, you know, look inside yourself and, and, um, you know, think what could you contribute to make it better? What, what are you, what are your tools that you could do or acquire, you know, or learn? And it could be, it could be as simple as picking up litter that you see that might've flowed into the ocean or, you know, it could be something, you know, giving money to groups that are doing it, you know, that are trying to save species and ecosystems. It, it could be a lot of different things, but I think we need to look inside. We need to personalize it, you know, to really make it. This is not about somebody on paper who said there's, you know, a climate emergency and uh, right. we need to do something. I mean, yes, that's important, and we should do we should do all the things, 
to be precautionary about all that, you know, and now we're seeing evidence of it. But it, I think if you get down to the, down to the ocean, and I think if you're far inland, you know, go down to the nearest river because they all flow into the ocean, you know, I mean, there's, there's only a finite amount of water on this planet. You know, all the, all the water circulates, you know, within it, you know, goes up. Sometimes this rain comes down, but it's, it's all one system when you look at it. And, you know, the, the dolphins discovered that, you know, there's so many river dolphins that are swimming up a couple thousand miles up the Amazon and that sort of thing. Well, those are, you know, those are sea creatures. You know, they are, you know, they started in the sea as we did. We're, we're sea creatures. And, you know, it's all, all of that is um, connected in a, in a really, in a, in a real way. I think trying to bring that to your consciousness, you know, if you can, if you can do that is highly motivating. I love that. I love the idea of just everyone going out and connecting with nature, right? And, and it is kind of overwhelming to think about all the things, right? So you just focus on what's going on. What can I see? What do I feel that's going on? And what can I control? What can I do? Right? So love it. Great conservation ask. All right. Well, I had so much fun chatting with you today. If listeners want to find you, connect with you, learn more about you and or your new book, Planktonia, which I really loved, loved reading and looking at the pictures. Listeners, you guys should definitely get check out a copy. If listeners want to do all these things, where's the best place to do so? Well, Planktonia, well, Planktonia you can get on any uh, from any bookstore. You may have to order it. And certainly online, you can order it from uh, the various online retailers. It's out now. If you want more information on my work, I have a website with my name, erichoyt.com. And our important marine mammal area work is accessible through marinemammalhabitat.org. Marinemammalhabitat.org, all one word. And my other work with uh, whale and dolphin conservation is accessible through whales.org. So fairly, yeah, fairly straightforward uh, access. Perfect. And I'll put a link to that and everything else we chatted about in the show notes today. Was there something else you wanted to add? No, no, that's great. If you've got show notes. And, uh, you know, I'm on Twitter with my name. Easy to find. It's all the the same uh, spelling just my name for Twitter and Facebook and, and, you know, I'm posting things all the time about all the exciting developments. So. Perfect. Well, Eric, thank you so much for being on the show today. I really enjoyed our chat. Thank you. Thank you, Cara. It was, it was great. I really, I, I really enjoyed it as well. Thanks. Hey, one more thing. Do you want to dive more into the ocean and marine biology? Need a little guidance on ocean conservation? Head on over to marinebio.life backslash resources. We've got book recommendations, job posting pages, conference suggestions, and ocean-friendly products. All recommendations have been personally vetted by me, and I will continue to add to the collection as I come across cool things to share. Head on over to marinebio.life backslash resources to learn more. See you over there. Thank you for listening to today's show. I'd love to hear any insight you've gleaned. Leave a comment in the show notes or send me an email over at marinebio.life.
If you enjoyed this episode, leave a review and of course, share with your friends. If you want more resources for ocean news, including conservation topics and careers, plus personal insight from me that I just don't share anywhere else, join me at marinebio.life and sign up for email updates. Keep after your dreams and making waves in your community. One person can make a difference. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll catch you next time on the So You Want to Be a Marine Biologist podcast.